Hello, friends and listeners. Today's episode is one that I'm really pumped about. It is with Dr. Andrew Weil, who has been called the medical Nostradamus for his foresight into what's on the healthcare horizon. He is on to trends or insights often decades before they're mainstream. And and we actually catalog all the things he's been ahead of the curve on in this episode. It's really fascinating, the track record he's had. And it's no wonder he's a world-renowned pioneer in the medical and healthcare space. His resume could take up a 20-minute intro, and I'm not going to do that. But he is the best-selling author of, of over a dozen books, and, and I think it's 15 at last count. Founder and director of the Arizona Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona the co-founder of one of my favorite restaurants in my wife's all-time favorite restaurant, True Food Kitchen, which has 20-something, maybe 30 locations now around the country. He's also a massive matcha tea fan. More on, on that in a bit. He was one of the earliest healthcare professionals to openly write about diet and nutrition, openly criticizing uh, the healthcare system for the overprescription of pharmaceuticals. He's popularized themes like healthy aging, the mind-body connection, breathing techniques all years and sometimes decades before the rest of the medical community started to take note of these, these various trends and insights. I asked him after the episode something I wish I'd asked him on air, and he gave me permission to mention it here. And that was I asked him about his dietary and healthcare advice for founders, leaders, creators, employees in high-stress jobs or in high-stress situations in life. His response was that his first, second, third, fourth, fifth piece of advice would be to watch his short video on YouTube on the 478 breathing technique. It's about a five-minute video. It's free. You can watch it on YouTube for free and, and the technique in which you implement a specific type of breathing technique is also free. Breathing is one of the only activities that is both voluntary and involuntary. And Dr. Weil explained this to me that basically said you involuntarily breathe and you can voluntarily shift your breathing. And therefore, it's one of the only activities we can do to communicate back to the involuntary parts of our physiology that can get out of whack easily when stressed. Things like spikes of cortisol or increased heart rate and these things can be remedied by something as simple as practicing the super short breathing technique that he talks about on that video. I put the link to the video in the show notes so you can check it out there. So I'm not going to do an ad for this week's episode. I'd rather encourage people to go check out that video instead. It's that powerful. And I think we'll just do the audience way more good than, than an advertisement this week. So I'm going to take out the ad just to try to push people uh, and encourage people to go check out that video on YouTube. If you dig below the line, we'd love a review. It takes about five seconds. You don't even have to write anything anymore. You can just put down the stars. It's how podcast platforms rank and suggest podcasts. So every single review matters. And if you're one of the folks that have already given us a review, especially all the five-star reviews we've gotten, know that we appreciate and read every single one. Thank you so much. So without further ado, Let's get into it with Dr. Andrew Weil. This is Below the Line. All right, we are here with Dr. Andrew Weil. Hi, James. Thank you for hosting me. We're to set the setting here. We are in 
Tucson, Arizona, mm-hmm. your lovely home. And it is beautiful, warm outside. We are certainly in the heart of the desert. Yeah. Um, but it's beautiful. Um, and the, uh, maybe it's because it's the desert, but I just know that I, I notice I'm, and I'm not a, uh, botanist by any means, but I'm just noticing the flora so much more. Maybe this is because a very of the desert. This is the upper Sonora desert. There's four deserts in North America, and this is by far the lushest. We have two rainy seasons, so very diverse and abundant flora and fauna. Well, it is, uh, yeah, I, as the drive here, I couldn't stop looking at, at all of the green and the contrast mm-hmm. of just the, uh, all of the, the brown, all of the desert. Yeah. It's really a really cool contrast. I want to chat about Tucson and, and what brought you here, but I first want to touch on what we're drinking right now, which is this episode, as listeners know, I've got a different kind of quirky drink each episode. And this episode, uh, it's one of my absolute <laughs> favorite drinks. Me too. It's matcha. Yes. And we're drinking matcha kari drink, which you're a co-owner of, co-founder yes, of. Yes, as co-founder. And the URL is matcha.com. And it was a great coup to get that. Excellent <laughs> URL. Yeah. yeah. Matcha.com for, for those listening. And um, and I also know Andre, your, your co-founder. Right. Uh, at least we've we've emailed back and forth and uh, over our love of matcha. And, and So my reason for founding this company was to bring high-quality matcha to people in North America because I discovered matcha many years ago and love it and never thought I would see it become as popular as it is now. But I've been very disappointed to see that the quality of most matcha that's out there is bad. You know, matcha is so finely powdered that it has such a huge surface area that it oxidizes very quickly. And if it's not stored properly, uh, kept away from light and oxygen, it oxidizes, loses its bright green color, loses its good flavor, becomes bitter. And many people have only tasted matcha like that and really have no idea what the good stuff is like. So that was my mission. <laughs> well, and you started, well, your your fascination or your... You know, preference for matcha started how long ago? <laughs> Just on the personal in, level. In, uh, in uh, let me see, when was it? In 1959, and when I was 17, I had the chance to go to Japan. And I lived with Japanese families in, outside of Tokyo and in Kobe. And I arrived, the, it was the 1st of November, gray, rainy. And Japan in those days was very different from what it is today. You know, it was not prosperous. It was still recovering from the war. And I lived with a middle-class family in a traditional house. There was no common language. You know, it was supposed to be a son who spoke English, but he didn't. Uh, but the day after I got there, the, my host mother uh, let me know that she wanted to take me next door to meet her neighbor who practiced tea ceremony. I heard a little bit about tea ceremony, but really didn't know anything about it. For listeners, do you mind giving a little bit of background of tea ceremony in Japan? Well, this is something that really arose out of the, the Zen tradition and samurai tradition in Japan. And it was a formal way of enjoying tea and sharing time and space with people. In recent times, it became something that mostly women performed and were trained to perform. And it can get very fancy in its ritual. At that time in Japan, matcha was probably mostly associated with tea ceremony. Since then, it has escaped the tea ceremony and become a, you know, an, an ordinary beverage that most people use. So at any rate, in the tea ceremony, there's a very formal way of boiling water, preparing the bowl, handling the utensils. So the woman who was doing this, you know, my host mother and I sat facing her at a low table on the floor 
And she, first of all, produced this bamboo whisk, which I was just fascinated by. You know, it's a marvel of Japanese craftsmanship that's carved from one piece of bamboo. Right. There's something about the shape of that. I was just fascinated by that. And then the matcha powder, I had never seen anything so brilliantly green. And when she whisked it up, you know, the color of the beverage and the way it tasted, it just captivated me. So I was determined to be able to enjoy that again. And... I brought some back with me uh, when I came back from Japan. And then when I, I made a number of trips to Japan in the 1970s. And whenever I'd go, I'd pick up some matcha at the airport and bring it back. And nobody here had ever heard of it or seen it. Would you just call it green tea when you brought it back? No, I called it matcha. <laughs> and I turned a lot of friends onto it and showed them how to use it. Most people really liked it. But, you know, it's a, it's a strange thing for Americans, the whole process of whisking it and that is what makes it so captivating when you see a tea ceremony. Yeah. I've done one tea ceremony in Japan and from the bamboo whisk. And by the way, for listeners, yeah, <laughs> many listeners know that I love matcha. I've yes. talked about it numerous times on the podcast and, and I have a whole, you know, this book coming out beyond coffee, which uh, goes into a little bit of detail on, on matcha as an alternative to coffee. But the you were you were working beyond coffee four long, decades, five decades ago. ago. <laughs> long, um, long ago. Yeah. And as you know, the... the quality of stimulation from matcha is very different from that. Very different. And some of it is, it has a lower amount of caffeine, but it also has substantial amount of L-theanine mm -hmm. that has a calming effect and that modifies the effect of the caffeine. So many people find they get a, a alert relaxation from it. Uh, yeah. It's, it's my preferred you know, morning drink right. because of that alertness, but yep. I'm relaxed. I'm not alert and excitable, which is, you know, the enemy of productivity. Yes, exactly. Uh, with, you know, one too many cups of coffee, you're, mm -hmm. you're not going to be very productive. Now, I, I love it for that. And it's, and it uh, is, I remember reading one time that it, because it's the whole leaf, um, it's like 130 times more antioxidants than regular green tea, right. as well as other kind of catechins and just different. And the way much the way it's produced, it you know, the, the tea plants that are going to destined to become matcha are grown under heavy shade for three mm -hmm. weeks before harvesting. I think it's a 90% shade cloth. So in response to that, the plants produce leaves that are larger, thinner, and have more chlorophyll to take advantage of what light is there. And they also produce more of the flavor compounds and L-theanine. So that's one reason why matcha has uh, you know, a, a higher antioxidant and uh, content and other good things in it than other tea. Well, I think uh, metaphorically, I want to touch back on on that concept yeah. with your productivity and proliferation <laughs> uh, as a doctor or founder advocate it makes me interested in what what your you know i don't know pre-college or pre-harvard medical school years were like to create um dr andrew weil but before we jump into that i i also wanted to uh just say that it is i really do and this is i'm not i get no uh uh kickback for this whatsoever but matcha kari's matcha is phenomenal it's it really 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 good. good really good and by the way uh there's a discount code for people listening to the podcast that's jb1515 all right so if you use that when you order you get you know some off well it is i've got it stocked in i, I keep it in my uh freezer that's what i do okay I, yeah. yeah i probably have it once or twice a day mm -hmm. but one of the things that that you touched on is yeah the matcha that you get here in the u.s i will try to introduce people yeah. to matcha They'll get it at Starbucks, or, and I and I try to tell them that no, that's like the Folgers of yeah, it's of matcha. That's I mean, not yellow green, right. often bitter. People say it tastes like seaweed or grass. I mean, that good matcha is just delicious, complex flavor. You know, a hint of bitterness, but also sweet. It's just wonderful. Well, we have 
founders of, of amazing companies on the podcast, and I rarely spend this much time on their <laughs> okay, company, because, but it really is uh, because Machikari is so great. Thanks. So dang good. But I, I want to get into your story a little bit. But before we do, I wanted to, I was thinking, leading up to this interview, just trying to catalog in my own mind, all of the different medical or health narratives that you have been on the forefront of, mm-hmm. and or the misconceptions that you were in the forefront of maybe for two right. or three decades while people still thought maybe you were like, <laughs> Looney, you and, and continue to be proven right. Instead of me cataloging them in your 40 plus years of practice, what are... What well, I can is, give you a few. I mean, yeah, I have a knack for yeah. being able to see several years ahead of where evidence is going to go. I was warning people about the dangers of using antibiotics too much back in the 1970s and that the problem of antibiotic resistance was going to grow and grow unless we got really smart about how to use them, which we didn't. I was warning people about margarine and other sources of trans fats probably 10 years before the medical community realized how dangerous they were. I mean, those are some examples, but I could give you a whole whole list. I was also uh, at least least, uh, on the forefront of cannabis not being that, yeah, being uh, well, uh, and not to put words in your mouth, but not nearly as uh, as chaotic for society as alcohol. Correct. And uh, you know, I was experimenting with and learning about psychedelics again back in the 1960s, and I wrote a lot about their therapeutic potential. Uh, in my first book, The Natural Mind, that was published in 1972. So it's it's amusing to me suddenly to see, you know, all this explosion of interest in it. And, you know, I was there a long time ago. And and then the, maybe the one of the biggest just being integrated medicine as, mm-hmm. a, as a whole and integrating just medicine and, and uh, techniques from different cultures um, for, for this very entrepreneurial audience. Do you mm-hmm. mind giving... Uh, a broad overview of integrative medicine. Sure. I mean, it, it, the short definition is it's the intelligent combination of conventional medicine and natural therapies and lifestyle change, uh, as well as using, you know, whatever therapy works as long as it's not going to cause harm. I mean, a, a longer answer is that it's a system that focuses first on the innate healing potential of the human organism. And that's a concept that I think is really missing from modern medicine. Uh, you know, that both doctors and patients really do not have a lot of confidence in the human organism's ability to maintain itself, heal itself, which to me is phenomenal. So one of my missions is to, you know, make people more confident about that. Why do you, can I say one other thing? Yeah, the, another like very uh, important plank of integrative medicine is whole person medicine. That is, we regard human beings as more than physical bodies. Conventional medicine really restricts its view to the physical. But human beings are also mental, emotional beings, spiritual entities, community members, and those other dimensions of human life have to be taken into account to understand health and illness. One of the, and one of the things that you really uh, recently blew my mind with last night over dinner you were telling me about, well, I'll let you tell the, the in, in the right way, but it was around our experimentation and in every single experiment, just about every experiment, you can go into the placebo-controlled yep side of the experiment. Do you mind giving... What I said is, you know, that the, this is, is always held up as the gold standard of scientific research. You have to uh-huh. do randomized, controlled, double-blind right. studies, especially of drugs. And um, the an assignment that I often give medical students and doctors is to go to a library, pull out a any medical journal at random that reports results of those tests, look up an article, and then flip to the end where there's a table that summarizes the results 
And always, and I emphasize always, in the placebo group, there will be one or two or a small number of subjects who show all of the changes produced in the experimental group that got the drug. To me, that is the most important finding that's come out of 60, 70 years of doing this kind of research, that any change you can produce in the human organism with a pharmacological intervention can be exactly reproduced in some people, some of the time, purely by a mind-mediated mechanism. I mean, that's amazing. And we should that be is taking so, advantage of right? it. It's, and it's... I had never thought about it that way, and and it's still rattling around my mind of of why we well, one why we haven't this, you know, haven't the, taken the, that the seriously. Two sentences that I hear most frequently from conventionally minded physicians when they use the word placebo is, "Oh, that's just the placebo effect," and the interesting word there is "just." You know that the placebo effect is devalued. It's not like a real or as important as a real effect. And secondly, is we have to rule out the placebo effect. You know, we should be ruling it in. That's what you want. <laughs> right. You know, it's, it's the maximum healing response with the minimum intervention. That, that should be the goal of good medicine. Maximum he healing response with minimum. Minimum inter intervention. Intervention. Right. right. The, it's, it is really fascinating. I don't, what should the medical community do with that or uh, us as a community as Well, a, I think this large, falls too. under the heading, the art of medicine, and that's a subject that we teach in integrative medicine. And it's about how you use words with patients. You know, patients project a lot of belief onto physicians, but most physicians are not trained in how to work with that. You know, there's a way that you can reflect that belief back in a way that activates healing in people. One is by when you give a treatment, to give it with total confidence. And the best way you have confidence is if you yourself has ex have experienced that. You know, if I can recommend to a patient something that I've used in myself and I know it works, my belief is going to transfer to their belief and increase the possibility of that, you know, working for them. And maybe equally as important as I think there's been a growing level of disbelief uh, or Absolutely. a projection of, of lack of confidence in, in doctors in, in just in the last five, six 10 yep. years, especially yep. with the opioid crisis and as the backdrop. Yeah. And doctors, I imagine, are obviously not trained at how to deal with that or how to yep. reinstill confidence. I'll tell you that in a minute, but let me tell you one thing. Yeah. Over the years, many patients that I've worked with have come back to me and said that in retrospect, the most important thing that I did for them was that I was the only doctor they saw who told them they could get better. I mean, that makes me very sad in a way. Uh, you know, one of the practical pieces of advice I have for people is don't stay in treatment with a doctor who thinks you can't get better. And how would you tactically find that out? Well, I mean, you know, if doctors will often say there's nothing we can do for you, you know, or you know, have nothing to offer you, or you'll just have to live with it. My wife and I, I have a habit of, of just bearing everything on this podcast. Um, my wife and I, we went through a, a miscarriage earlier this year and then on monday of this week heard that uh that we're likely we're going to go back no, i'm sorry next, or sorry monday of last week so mm -hmm. going to go back this week and 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 it the odds are not good and yeah the doctor just said it happens <laughs> and and there's no advice on how to try to avoid a third miscarriage in a row well see and, there's a lot of information out there and and the, many doctors are unaware of that and that's those are the deficiencies that I and my colleagues are trying to correct in integrative medicine. And we train doctors in all the things that are left out of conventional medical education. Well, and it was only mentioned to us by a friend that uh, that is a PA that said, yeah, OBGYNs, they're only trained in Very birth narrow, and right. pregnancy. Yep. They don't, they're not trained in right. fertility. And that, uh, that could be a generalization and some might be. But when I looked it up, 
afterwards I was like, oh my God, that's yeah. like mind numbingly yes. um, obvious and pretty frustrating as, as a couple going through yeah. a second miscarriage, wondering what to do next. Right. And, and obviously the expert in the room is, is our OBGYN just saying, and I'm not joking, the, the phrase was, this just happens. There's no advice or encouragement. It, when you said that you're, it sends you, it's, it's also just sends you to realize that it's just being with a, it's so simple to be with a doctor that actually yeah. wants you to get better. It saddens. Who believes you can get better. Who believes right. you can get better. Right. Right. Not just one tip, but believe right. it. It's um, as, a, as an angel investor, my full-time job is to in, encourage startups. I feel like it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it is one of the best. Uh, I can't imagine a better profession yeah, uh, for my skill set to encourage creation, you know, everywhere. And, and, and I'll hear from founders, and this is a, a sad reflection, not uh, a pat on the back that, you know, I'll get really excited about what they're building and then encourage them around this or that. Yeah. And, um, and even if I don't invest, I can see why they're excited about it, why yeah. they're putting 80 hours a week into something yeah. and, and find things to encourage directions to encourage them. And, and I will, I've heard this verbatim maybe three times in the last 12 months that I was their favorite angel investor because <laughs> I was so encouraging. So, so and I, I was like, and honestly, the first observation is, oh, cool, great, I'm providing value. That's right. great. But the second observation is, why, why isn't, isn't everybody doing that? Encouraging. Right. You would think anyone, yeah. their profession, anyone that, that has a profession completely focused on entrepreneurship and dealing with founders right. each day would be encouraging. And yet, when I did kind of go through it in my own mind, when I was a founder of three different companies, I do remember about 98% of people just had doubt, skepticism, uh -huh. lack of, of um, you know, response yep. whatsoever. Even full-time investors, they're just constantly thinking how it wouldn't work or maybe mm -hmm. scarred from think their excitability right. uh, earlier in their careers. But I imagine that's you know 10 times more palpable with a doctor. Definitely. I think a problem when I try to understand why, where, where does that pessimism come from, some of it is that they're training, you know, and when doctors are trained in hospitals, they're seeing a very skewed sample of the sick population. They see the very sick. And in that population, healing is less likely. It still happens. But if you look at the whole spectrum of illness, the rule is that people get better. Most diseases end by themselves and they end because the body's internal healing mechanisms take care of things. Also, I think another issue, subtle, is that doctors like to be in control. And I think it is easier for them to predict negative outcomes because then if the patient win, win. doesn't get better, they've predicted that. Right, they've and right. if the patient does get better, they can be pleasantly surprised. But in any way, they're, they, they feel more in control. Anyway, it's very, it's very I can't tell you how similar that is to, yeah. to startup investing. Uh-huh. It's um, unless you invested in that deal... Every investor is negative on that. And yeah, it, is, that. it right. is so much easier yeah. uh, to predict a negative consequence right. or a, a negative conclusion. Okay, one of the questions that, that uh, I ask just about every guest, and sometimes it's later in the podcast, but I'm yeah. really intrigued to ask this one right up front, is tell me three stories that have helped shape who you've become in your life. Okay, one was, um, and I've told you about this, that I by chance, won a scholarship to this experimental school um, when I graduated high school. It was called the International School of America. And it took a group of 22 students and six faculty members around the world for an academic year. And we lived with Native families in each country. Uh, and that 
totally changed my life. First of all, it completely broke my ties with home. Uh, and you're in Philly? Yes, Philly. My mother said after that, I never really came home. Uh, but also, it really opened my eyes to how different cultures interpret reality differently. You know, that we don't have a monopoly on how things are. And that when you're in other cultures, you see that people have different experiences. They interpret experiences in different ways. That has enormously influenced my thinking about food, about about medicine, about all sorts of things. And travel has been a huge part of my life ever since. What are some of the specific examples that you recall from that that experience that just kind of blew you away of and and restructured your thinking? <laughs> well, I'll tell you one, one picture that stands out of my mind. I was in Calcutta on Night of the Full Moon. And another... And what year was this again? 1959. Okay. And another student in this group, a woman and I, had wandered down to the banks of the river, and there was a, a Hindu temple there, and we ran into some sadhu, a holy man, uh, who talked to us about Aum being the sound of the universe, and then he chanted that Aum, and I'd never heard that before, and it was like I felt it throughout my body, I and mean, it was an amazing experience. I mean, that's just one example. <laughs> I imagine that must have been so foreign, from Philly in the 50s. Yep to Calcutta and, and yeah. hearing home. And, and I think maybe, you know, living in San Francisco, yeah. you're introduced to the, uh, the sound home. You know, I'll give you one other example. Basis, but in Japan, uh, I never liked breakfast growing up. I didn't like the things that I was given to eat. I, I didn't, I hated milk. I didn't like eggs. I didn't like cereal. Taste-wise? or Yeah, it did, it's just not what I wanted. I never knew what I wanted. And then I arrived in Japan and in this family was served a traditional Japanese breakfast, which was some steamed rice, piece of broiled fish, miso soup, green tea, some pickled vegetables, some steamed vegetables. That was just what I wanted. I mean, it was just what it tasted great. I felt great afterward. I mean, I loved it. And then I didn't go back to Japan for about 15 years. And I was very surprised when I went back to see how few Japanese were eating Japanese breakfast anymore. You know, most of them were really? drinking coffee, eating scrambled eggs and toast and butter. And, uh, you know, a huge change and you can only get Japanese breakfast in hotels. I mean, maybe that's, you know, going back some now, but that's an example again of a, you know, cultural difference that really influenced me. Was that one of your first experiences with diet affecting kind of a functional diet, diet affecting? Yeah. I mean, I, that, I felt good. Day? You know, whereas when I ate most, you know, American breakfast foods, I didn't feel good, especially if I ate something like, you know, pancakes, which is horrible. I felt dull and sluggish all it day. It probably only hit me when in my 20s yeah. and I realized, all right, if I have two pancakes, <laughs> yeah, I need right. a nap right after. <laughs> right, exactly. But yeah, when I was 13, that was a, a special treat. Right. And I also, in that year, 1959, you know, ate sashimi and sushi, which was a completely novel Way experience. before America, yeah. And if anybody had told me when I came back that, you know, one day cowboys in Arizona are going to be eating sushi, I would never have believed that. You know, it was amazing to see that happen here. What What is uh, something, I know the world has become a lot smaller in the last, wow, that's almost 60 years. Yeah. That is yeah. 60 years. <laughs> a little scary. What is, uh, I know the world's a lot smaller today and, and our cultures have have definitely meshed more, but what is something that you think Americans might love 20 years from now that yeah. you'd say today is is pretty is still pretty foreign to them? Well, I keep looking for well, things. Matcha might be a great <laughs> example, actually. I keep looking for things. You know, one is a, um, another Japanese ingredient is a starch called kuzu. It actually comes from the plant of people who are called kudzu, which is a noxious, you know, invasive weed in the South. Mm -hmm. But in Japan, it's not invasive like that. And the starch, the, the root produces a very high quality starch 
better than anything else. And it stabilizes blood sugar. It has many health effects. Pretty much unknown here. And I've been trying to turn people on to that. Really? Interesting. Are there any others? I feel oh, like I, got have, I think you have yeah, Probably gold mines, these, lots of them. these things. Is there anything that you thought would take off in the last 60 years of being kind of ahead of the curve that that either you yourself are like, oh, nope, this isn't it? Well, or, I suppose tea is one thing because before, even before I was working with matcha, I was promoting green tea in general. And at that time, it still this is true in a lot of places. It's very hard to get a cup of good green tea in America. You know, even in like a, a fine hotel, if you ask for green tea, often it's yellow brown or it's got jasmine in it. You know, to get really good sencha, Japanese green tea, is hard. But I was talking about the health benefits of that, again, long before it was popular here. And I think my writings and talking about that is one thing that increased interest in tea. And, and your health, the health benefits on its own or, or in contrast to something like coffee? I think both, you know, because it does not have a lot of the irritating effects on the body that coffee does. It's not as addictive. And in addition, there's a great deal of epidemiological evidence about people who drink tea, you know, having better health and longevity. Another one is um, I was telling people to eat kale long ago. Yeah. And, you know, I discovered this uh, kale salad and I was in Tuscany in Italy and was served this. I would never have thought of eating raw kale. And the uh, the possibility that by letting it sit for a while in lemon juice and salt, soften it up, it softens, it changes the color, reduces the bitterness. So when I started the True Food Kitchen restaurants, that was one of the main dishes. And that's become our signature dish. And at one point, uh, True Food Kitchen totally bankrupted kale production, <laughs> organic <laughs> kale production in Southern California. We used it all up. So, I mean, just an example of how popular, you know, that that's some, I think that's really something that I pretty much popularized. And and that was really overnight, I mean, 10 years yeah. to overnight that it went from, you know, the salad bar at Pizza Hut and right. it's ornamental and yeah. basically cardboard to all, <laughs> I mean, all of the rage. I was in, uh, I was uh, at a, a stand-up little routine. It's not really a stand-up place, but it's top this uh, shout out to Pizza Hacker in San Francisco. Uh -huh. On Tuesday nights, they've got free stand-up. And there was a stand-up there from Wisconsin that mm -hmm. was making a joke about how she couldn't keep up with all the milks that San Francisco's, you know, she was had a joke about almond milk. And yeah, then yeah. someone said afterwards, you should use oat milk in that joke <laughs> to be even more, you know, just San Francisco. And she's like, I can't keep up with your your milks. And to that same person, she she goes, and this is a very just normal yeah. looking 27 year old guy or something. She was like, I bet you love kale. And he just yells, fuck yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and my wife and I laughed about that for for probably three or four days. Just how enthusiastic. I mean, this guy might as well have been cheering for the Kansas City Chiefs in the way that he was cheering That's for great. for kale. And it and kale is I'm 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 also part of the uh, I guess the laggards that. I mean, I probably only got in, into really liking it a year or two ago. Uh -huh. Now I really, really love yeah. it. And you, you mentioned True Foods, which uh, I got to give a shout out there. My wife, she is a major fan. I was telling you yesterday that she, every time we go down to uh, go back to Texas, where we we have one in Dallas. Yep. I don't think there's one in San in Francisco. Dallas, actually. You two have one in, in the northern suburb. How awesome. Plano, I think. Yeah, and yeah. we don't have any in uh, San Francisco. No, it's real estate's too expensive there. There's one yeah. in Walnut Creek and one in Palo Alto. Okay, well, when when we're in Dallas, we're circling could, around. Yes, yeah. <laughs> well, it's uh, when we're in Dallas, she she goes, you know, three times Great. a week, and um, and it really is. It's her favorite restaurant. 
I really enjoy peddling your things Thank because you. <laughs> because it's uh, it's, it's really not, well, it's not even for you. It's right. for listeners because I know that it's it is it's a really healthy choice for them. Yeah. Um, and true foods is really good tasting uh, food, but obviously uh, much healthier than than uh, than a lot of alternatives. Our previous favorite restaurant in San Francisco or in Dallas was just a Tex-Mex restaurant. I don't even want to know. Yeah, I want to ask how, how <laughs> good or bad that was for us. With True Foods, one of the things that that I wanted to ask you about, and this I think ties into I think a through line with this conversation for the audience of uh, entrepreneurs, startup, creatively minded people, is the anti-inflammatory diet that. I think if I got it right, start has died way before True Foods as a, oh, yeah. as a I, restaurant. I was onto that long ago. In fact, um, I think I was one. Of, this is another example of I was one of the first people to talk about uh, chronic low-level inflammation being the root cause of really serious chronic diseases. And I developed an anti-inflammatory diet as the best overall health strategy. I based it on the Mediterranean diet because what what year about <laughs> was this? That I would say this was in. Um, probably 1990s. And I began writing about that. And in the, we, as I said, we have tremendous evidence for the health benefits of a Mediterranean diet and people like that. So I tweaked that by adding Asian influences to it based on my experiences in, in Japan and China and other parts of Asia. I added turmeric and ginger and Asian mushrooms and green tea and so forth right. uh, and developed this eating plan. So that was long before uh, the idea of True Food Kitchen. I feel like it is um, inflammation. It's another thing just in the last two, three years. You've, you've been proven. I want to try to stump you on things that you've been wrong on, but you really, um, that's another thing that's worth just pursuing a little bit more uh, for listeners, uh, inflammation and and they're seeing its, its um, effects on depression yep. or it's uh, right. it being a, a major cause for certain types of depression, yep. uh, mental illness, anxiety, irritable bowel syndrome, which yeah, is, is basically who knows what IBS actually right. is, yeah. but but it's a catch-all for many things. Mm-hmm. And many of them could be it's kind of like mental illness. It's a catch-all for so many things. Right. But tell me a little bit more about how you even just started to come across, like, let's take that one for example. How do you start to piece this together? Hey, there could be something here when no one else is piecing you this know, stuff I, together. I'll, well, I'll tell you a story. When I was in co- both college and medical school, I hated libraries. You know, I wanted to get out of them as fast as possible. So I developed a skill. You went to a, through a lot of school yeah. for someone that <laughs> I hate reading. Hey, but I developed the skill of being able to find exactly the information I wanted in the least amount of time. And often I could like scan through titles of things and, oh, this is one I want to pay attention to. But even when I got it, I would just read a little bit of the abstract. I got it. So I've always had that talent. I've been able to scan widely and see things that... Did you know that was a talent early on or did you feel like there was a deficiency? I, I didn't know. Of- no, I knew. No. Well, no, I, I knew it was a talent because I watched other people like struggling and being in terrible moods, you know, with stuff. And I just had the ability to do that. Now, also, since I started the Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona, I have a tremendous number of former students and graduates out there who are always sending me things. So I just, anything of interest passes my desk, and I quickly know whether it's something that I should pay attention to or not. What are some signs of something recently or something related to anti-inflammation? Um Let's see. I'll just mention a couple things. One, I, there was a, an interesting uh, article that I glanced at a couple weeks ago um, looking at the microbiome of organically raised food versus conventional food. You know, plants have microbiomes. Mm. So this study looked at apples 
And the microbiome of apples, not just on the skin, but in the flesh and in the seeds, and the microbiome of organic apples was very different from that of conventionally raised, different organisms. And that's, you know, that's a very interesting fact. And it's possible that those different organisms are much better for your gut than you know, what you get in conventional produce. I just saw one, another one that caught my attention, I mentioned this to you, is that the vagus nerve uh, seems to transmit serotonin that's manufactured in the gut. There's a great production of serotonin in the gut. And the vagus nerve seems to carry this to the brain. And this may be a link, you know, between the gut and mental emotional states, you know, really interesting. Right. And I know that there's, uh, I know I'm like a pop, <laughs> pop uh, medicine person. So it's, uh, uh, I do really love reading this research, the, the research is that once you start to, it's almost like collecting baseball cards. Right. Once you start to have kind of a collection of different ideas and areas that you're, that you're interested in, you could be an um, insurance sales and in Kansas City and still exactly. start to piece these things together and find it really fascinating. Right. I know I know I have in that you know that went into um, the book that's coming out later this year around nootropics and and adaptogens and and mushrooms. That's really cognitive performance or productivity yeah. has been my field of interest. So I, I can really I can totally identify with just reading them briefly or just accumulating mm -hmm. a handful of them in a topic that you're interesting in, interested in then it just, it does become easier to start to see, see where these piece together. But I, I bring that up because, yeah, in the, the vagus nerve, I remember hearing that uh, in serotonin, is it coming from your stomach? Yes, or, it's manufactured in the, I mean, in the intestines. And, and there's a third of your neurons or something are in your right, stomach, GI tract. The second, the second brain. Right. And we, we conventionally just say the, you know, the squiggly organ in your head, that's your mind, that's your brain, right. that's where everything important is happening. Yeah. And, and, and no interaction with the body. Right. Now, even though the evidence is right in front of our face, I'll give you one thing anyone can observe. If you are on a college campus at exam time, you look at the numbers of students who come into student health services with GI upsets, diarrhea, nausea, vomiting. I mean, it's obvious. That's like, you know, right in front of your eyes and people don't see it. I know in, in many startups and... And many founder friends develop GI issues. And yeah, I remember hearing on a previous podcast guest, they near they all he described or defined a toxic workplace, not toxic in terms yeah, yeah, of like yeah. the PC level, but a toxic workplace for your own productivity is when you have high expectations and low control. Uh -huh. And it's that contrast. If one of those is fine without the other. Yeah. But when you combine the two, it leads to extreme lack of productivity, uh -huh. distraction, and ultimate a lot of ultimately a lot of stress. That articulation just stuck with me, and I think it's um, it's certainly when I have developed kind of stomach issues, I feel like it's always now when I look back, it was always in the mix of high expectation, low control, huh. and yeah, it's, uh, it doesn't surprise me that students. I'm sure I had that yeah, uh, to really some degree common. of high expectations, low control. Uh -huh. And that is the startup environment in ha. so many ways. Is that's, It's just that. Ha. In fact, I feel like many startups try to bridge the gap of high expectations, low control by raising the expectations <laughs> even more. Uh -huh. and, and I think that's inspiring on day one, but it's uh, it can be in, in years, uh, words, you know, quite toxic day 181. But um, the with anti-inflammation, 
uh, what do you remember back in the 90s, what you were kind of piecing together? Well, I was seeing articles in various places about, that were looking at inflammatory causes contributors to chronic conditions that I'd never thought of. And I began to see a pattern there, you know, that this was a common theme. And diseases that when I was in medical school, I was taught had nothing to do with each other, you know, like cancer and heart disease and Alzheimer's disease, these were completely independent disease entities, turn out that they may be linked. You know, they may have a common root in Being uncontrolled inflammation. inflammation. And if that's the case, then there's things you can do to reduce that risk because, you know, there are factors that influence inflammation that are under our control. And do you mind going into a little bit more detail for listeners of what you mean by inflammation? Everyone knows inflammation on the surface of the body. It's local redness, heat, swelling, and pain at an area that's injured or under attack. And inflammation is actually, although it can be uncomfortable, is the cornerstone of the body's healing response. It's how the body gets more nourishment and more immune activity to an area that needs more it. oxygen, more... More food, more immune, more defensive action. But inflammation is so powerful and it's so potentially destructive that it's really important that it stays where it's supposed to stay and end when it's supposed to end. So the body has evolved very elaborate mechanisms to control how much inflammation you produce and to call it off when it's not needed. If you can't produce enough inflammation, you're vulnerable to infection. If you produce too much inflammation, you get allergies, autoimmunity, but then over the long term, you have greatly increased risks of these serious chronic diseases. Uh, so, you know, I think the important thing to understand is that inflammation is important. It has its place, but it has to be in balance. And there's a lot of factors that influence that. There's genetic factors, but there's things under your control. Stress influences inflammation. Uh, exposure to toxins in the environment, secondhand tobacco smoke is a powerful pro-inflammatory agent, and diet has a huge role. And the mainstream North American diet is strongly pro-inflammatory. It gives us the wrong fats, the wrong kinds of carbs, and not enough of the protective elements that are mostly in fruits, vegetables, herbs, spices, beverages. Do we know how the the mechanism works if you if you eat Let's say, uh, what would be a great well, yeah, example, well, an example of a pro is like you look at fats. You know, we know that um, trans fats, uh, partially hydrogenated oils, unsaturated oils, if they oxidize, they all promote inflammation. Whereas, you know, omega 3 fatty acids have a strong anti inflammatory effect. Uh, so that's something you can change in your diet. You eliminate the pro inflammatory fats and you try to eat more of the anti inflammatory fats. When I I look back at uh, my health choices and diet choices, but also exercise and uh, mental health choices, I when I was young, it just I you, it's so easy to build these bad habits right. because you know you can have the pro-inflammatory response. I I imagine it's maybe because you have the pro-inflammatory response that's natural with that food, right. but you have the anti-inflammatory response that can coincide with it. But as as we get older, that second part. Um, maybe isn't is, isn't up to the challenge as much as as when we're you know sixteen or twenty three. I think it's really important to get basic information about health and lifestyle to kids, you know, starting in kindergarten, and it's not complicated. You know, you can explain the basic facts about nutrition and 
everything else in the healing system of the body in ways people can understand. Uh, for example, I'll give you, to give you one thing I would do. More examples, okay, the better. Okay. I love examples. Um, most people don't, I think, don't know that all of your bone mass and muscle mass are built up very early in life, you know, usually up to the late 20s. After that, you can't add any more muscle mass or bone mass. It's all downhill from there. And all you can do is slow loss. So if people understood that, that would, I hope, motivate them in those years, teenage years and early 20s, to have the habits that are going to increase bone and muscle mass because that's going to last you for the rest of your life and not undermine them. Mm. Like not smoking and not drinking sugary drinks and you know doing the right kinds of exercise and all that. Right. Not eating pizza. Oh, I love pizza. It's got to be yeah. good pizza. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think everything in moderation. I just eat pizza all the time. And I used to just think, oh, I'm lucky with uh, with a fast metabolism. Yeah, yeah, right. And uh, but not knowing that there's a whole lot more going on. Yeah. Uh, than just uh, and you get you know, away with a lot of stuff when right. you're young, so you don't see the immediate effects. But the fact is that the habits you build up at that time have very long range consequences. Why hasn't the anti-inflammatory diet uh, become as as just in vogue as kind of keto and uh, <laughs> gluten free? Well, first of all, it's not you know it's not a diet; it's a way of eating. And uh, you know, I actually I think it is gaining a lot of currency out there, uh, especially among knowledgeable people. It's not faddish. Uh, it's it's also not extreme, and people really seem to like extreme things. I don't think it's healthy to throw a whole macronutrient under the bus. You know, it is not good to eliminate carbohydrate or to eliminate fat. Uh, I think people need to understand that there are good fats and bad fats. There are good carbs and less good carbs. And you want to make the right choices. I, there's, a, there's a term that's been proposed recently called orthorexia nervosa. Uh, <laughs> it has not yet been officially accepted as an eating disorder, but it's an obsession with you know, healthy eating and right eating and leaving out whole categories of food and uh, eating disorder specialists saying that they're seeing more and more people with it. In my own experience, I find it more and more frustrating to cook dinner for groups of people. You know, this person doesn't eat gluten. This one doesn't eat dairy. Uh, there was a wonderful cartoon in The New Yorker a few years ago by Roz Chast. It's called The Last Thanksgiving, you know, parody of the first Thanksgiving with the Pilgrims Indians. And in this, there are 12 people sitting around an empty table looking very unhappy and they have balloons over their head. And one is, you know, doesn't eat, doesn't drink milk, doesn't eat dairy, can't tolerate gluten, allergic to wheat. There's nothing to eat. My wife is probably nodding her head because I've gone vegetarian. <laughs> I've gone gluten-free. Um, it's I, good to experiment. I, you know, I, I'm all for experimenting, but I, I, you know, I was in um, Okinawa earlier this year. I've been there a number of times to look at the healthy longevity there. I love Okinawa. It's an amazing place, very different yeah. from the rest of Japan. But this time I sat around with a group of, you know, of centenarians and you know, who all look, we're great and happy. And the one piece they were asked, you know, what is your secret? And every one, the first words that they said were, were eat everything. Now, I don't think they meant eat McDonald's because – that has become increasingly popular in Okinawa and is sabotaging Okinawan longevity. But, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think this idea of, you know, not restricting your dietary choices extremely, uh, to me, that makes sense. Yeah, and I, I can certainly see some connection with uh, almost of an addictive type to go on these hardcore diets and then talk about it right. uh, ad nauseum with people. Um, <laughs> and, it, you know, it's I saw another or... cartoon that I love. This was in Spanish. Somebody, a Mexican friend, sent it to me. It was a couple sitting in a restaurant and there's a waitress there and they're saying to the waitress, 
you know, we don't eat gluten, we don't eat wheat, we don't eat meat, we don't blah, blah, blah. What should we order? And she says, a taxi. <laughs> <laughs> that is, I can sympathize with that as a, yeah. as a host as well right. for, for people, um, friends that, that I know listen to this podcast probably know or might be putting themselves in that bucket. But I belong in there too. I've certainly kept people guessing on what, what I was trying out uh, at a certain point in time. On the, just to, just to kind of put a, a capstone on the anti-inflammatory diet, what is some of the, the research, and you touched on a low-grade uh, inflammation causing certain issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some of the specific issues that, that you've seen? I know that I, as a very interested party around mental health, has, has definitely seen it. Well, that's a huge change years. in thinking, the idea that there's an inflammatory component of depression. And that some forms of major depression respond to treatment with anti-inflammatory drugs. I mean, that's amazing. That's a completely new way of thinking just in the past few years. I had a friend in college that would say that he always felt great when he took Advil. Interesting. And I knew that he suffered from, from, uh, from depression. He had confided in me that he did completely separately. Huh. Six, seven, eight months later, he was joking that he's like painkillers Amazing. and saying, I, and then he followed up by saying, I actually feel really good. So I don't really know the story of how this idea came about. It's pretty interesting. I know yeah, the please. man, Chuck Raison, who was one of the uh, formulators of this hypothesis. There's a phenomenon that's been very well known in domestic animals called sickness behavior. When, a, when animals right. get sick, they exhibit a characteristic pattern of stuff. They stop eating, they stop moving, they don't stop socializing. no sex, they stop socializing. And farmers traditionally attributed this to fatigue associated with illness. And then in the 1970s, to everybody's astonishment, it was found that sickness behavior was mediated by a blood-borne factor. That is, you could take blood from an animal with this behavior, inject it into a healthy animal, and it developed the same you know, pattern of behavior. So they didn't know what it was for a long time. And then it was identified as uh, a group of compounds called cytokines that mediate inflammation in the body. Uh, So, and actually, if you think about it, evolutionarily, this makes sense. If you're sick, you want to conserve energy. So you don't want to waste it on digestion. Or if you twist an ankle, you want to put yourself out of harm's way, get away from people, yeah, conserve energy and heal for two weeks. Right. So it may be that, you know, the, the inflammatory response you know, affects the brain in a way that changes your behavior and affects mood. So this this is like a whole new way of thinking. And you could you could absolutely see it being a simple evolutionary track of uh, conserve energy, get away from danger zones, right. big social settings, yeah. and just heal for two weeks right. for your twisted ankle. But if it is so low-grade chronic inflammation yeah, right. from your diet, yeah. then, well, it's a six-month right. uh, potential you know, cycle of, of depression. Right. It is fascinating. What is, the, what is the medical world like when it starts to piece these things together? Because this is happening, I mean, as we speak in the last two, three years. Yeah. Is it just, I mean, I have no idea, and I don't think listeners, either, is it maybe 12 advocates just now starting to talk about it amongst themselves? Is it... 2,000 doctors that, that are like, all right, we, we, that's interesting to think about. I, the, uh, the dean of our longtime dean of our college of medicine here at the university of Arizona, who was the person that gave the green light to start this integrative medicine program, uh, Jim Dolan, a cardiologist said that one thing he learned in his career was that how doctors respond to new information is more a function of its source than its content. If information comes from an unfamiliar source, that their reaction is to be defensive and reject it. And the example that he gave from his own career, interesting, is that the, the possibility that aspirin 
is a blood thinning agent that may reduce risk of heart attack, was first proposed by a general practitioner in Kansas who wrote an article. He, he noticed when he took aspirin that his shaving cuts bled longer. And then he observed that you know, in that day, they were taking tonsils out of everyone, and it was common to give kids a product called Aspergum to chew, and that the kids who chewed that had more bleeding in their throats. So he started giving aspirin to his friends and neighbors and asking them to notice what happened and their shaving cuts bled more. So he wrote up this article in a journal of, of general practice saying aspirin has blood thinning properties and it may be useful to prevent heart attacks. It took 40 years for the cardiology community to come around to that point of view because the article was written by a general practitioner, not a cardiologist, and it appeared in a journal of, of general practice. I mean, if that's how they react to something like that, think how they react to something coming from Chinese medicine right. or, you know, or herbal medicine. So I, I don't know. It's sometimes a slow process. Look at the, the microbiome stuff. When I was in medical school, I was taught that people who ate, you know, yogurt were health nuts. You know, I was taught that there were all these organisms in the gut that, and they ate it with digestion and that was it. And suddenly, you know, this is now... It looks like this is the key to all of our interactions with the environment and, and a major determinant of physical and mental health. So I'd say that that idea slowly percolated up as research stuff started coming out. Now everybody's you know on that bandwagon. Why do you think that is? I feel like the resistance to new information. I mean, you've been in many ways the uh, canary in the coal mine in so yeah. many different. You have a pretty unique perspective on this, I would imagine. What? Why do you think there is so much resistance um, built up in that in the medical community in the startup community it's like you come up with something new they're going to go for they're going to go for it um and maybe it's the commercial side of it uh but there's such a hunger for what's next what's next what's in next? some cases it's the people that have commitments to the old way of thinking right. you know are threatened for example when laparoscopic gallbladder surgery first came on the scene infinite improvement over open abdominal gallbladder surgery a lot of surgeons told patients that it was not a good idea it was unavailable because they weren't trained in it. You know, all they knew was to cut the abdomen open and take the gallbladder out. So that's clearly a vested interest that you know, influenced their thinking. With a lot of the environmental stuff, I mean, this is a major thing I'm interested in. You know, what, what are the dangers of cell phones? What are the dangers of this kind of pollution, that kind of pollution? There are very powerful vested interests that, you know, try to control the information. Uh, and it's very hard to sort through that. And often the, the research results are contradictory. And, uh, you know, it's not clear which, what to do. My sense is that you go with the precautionary principle and, you know, you avoid things, uh, you know, until you know more about them. Seems like a, uh, an artistic balance, as you noted, between the cautiousness and the potential for something new. Right. How have you, and I want to get back to the three stories yeah, yeah, right I after this question, <laughs> uh, but how do you balance that you personally? As an individual, as um, a thought leader within healthcare, how do you balance caution and uh, the pursuit of, of potential? Well, if, I mean, if, if you look at, look at, let's say, if I hear about a new treatment, you know, whether it's an herb or something like that, the first thing I do is to assure myself that it can't harm people. You know, if I if I can be assured that it's not harmful, then I'm willing to experiment with it until we have more evidence about efficacy. Right. I guess, yeah, the, the contrast to the startup world is there's not much downside if you're, if you're photo sharing app right. or if your 3D technology yeah. doesn't work. But uh, with health, it's a whole new, yeah. whole new paradigm or a completely different paradigm. But the, uh, and just to touch on uh, ibuprofen and, and 
uh, depression. I think it's uh, turmeric and ginger. Maybe you'd yeah, agree yeah, with yeah. me or uh, would be far better in terms of well, that downside, potential true. downsides. However, the, the NSAIDs are powerful and useful drugs, and you just have to be aware of their dangers, you know, which is that if they're used regularly, there's a significant risk of GI bleeding that can kill people. Uh, but you know that, that almost everything in medicine, there's benefits versus risks, and you have to do an analysis of that. Just out of personal curiosity, does turmeric have a similar downside? No, I think it's got nothing you know comparable to you know the pharmaceuticals. Because it is it is super powerful for me, and it yeah, and it really great. is a cognitive shift to say, okay, this herb that no one is talking about, yeah. turmeric or this root that or no one is talking about will help with a headache or right. help with, uh, with, you know, swelling from working out. And, you know, everyone just kind of just knows Advil is what you take for a headache. But it really works <laughs> wonders uh, for me. But there's almost the anti-placebo effect mm-hmm. of, of the, uh, just some, some of this lack of confidence in something that's really cheap right. uh, or free, right. you know, like your breathing technique, yep. which has helped me in innumerable anxious situations. Right which we can touch on as well, but if it's free or if it's cheap or if it's just a If it doesn't involve a drug or a device, people don't take it seriously. And the obvious follow-up is, uh, I wonder how how to change that. Can you change that? I think the way to change, I mean, the most powerful way to change it is through personal experience. You know, Mm -hmm. if people themselves experience something, then they believe. Next to that is if if they have a friend or family member that has experienced it, they might believe. So my my mother uh, went on a gluten free diet and said that uh, that's why I did it. She went on it for six months, I think, lost twenty six pounds or something, and said that she had more energy than mm-hmm. she'd ever had before, and that we should all try it. None of my brothers tried it, but I was like, I will try anything. So tried it, and I realized I I had an improvement in energy as well. Mm-hmm. I think looking back, it was getting rid of a lot of sugars, uh-huh. um, getting a lot rid of just a lot of processed. I mean, it's, yep. you take out gluten, you're going to, you're right. not going to eat uh, pizza. And then I would kind of just add gluten back after probably two years. Mm-hmm. And it didn't affect me greatly, but I certainly still, you give me a pancake and I'm out yeah, right. I'm for three hours right. afterwards. Yeah. So that family experience yeah. and personal experience, I think is, is spot on. Okay. Back to the three stories. What's the second story? that? Okay. So, you? you know, I, I have to, comp- I've had a lot of experience with psychedelics going, you know, going way back and. <laughs> Rather than picking out one, I would just compress, you know, a number of those experiences. But one thing that I powerfully got from those experiences was the close relationship between what's inside your head and what's outside. And particularly the possibility that you can change external things by changing things internally. One one example, um, you know, which many people can relate to is how a dog reacts to people who are afraid of them. I have, uh, as you know, I've always had Rhodesian Ridgebacks. And Beautiful I had a, dogs yeah, that are right I had, around I had us right now. Previous male, a big male named Jumbo. All he wants to do is crawl in your lap and cuddle. Uh, I I was living out in a ranch way out uh, east of Tucson, and I drove home one day, and there was a worker who would, was doing some kind of uh, yard work out there who had a rake, I think, and he was backed up against the wall, and this dog was snarling at him, hair raised, drooling. And he was brandishing the rake. And, you know, I, there was no way of convincing him that he was producing that behavior in the animal. You know, he thought this was a vicious attack dog that I had trained. You know, I had to take the dog away. But I have seen this again and again, how like what's in your head that 
influences how things react to you. Oh, I'm sure. And you know, on the last point that you were talking about, the doctors once they kind of commit to something, there's commitment bias. Once they say this is right. the this is the right uh, approach to this ailment, yeah. then we just psychologically know that now they're going to be more committed to it because right. they set out like this. This sounds a lot like you know confirmation bias, where if you're paranoid of a dog, then you're just going to have this resonance. Uh, then you're going to create the yeah the condition and the dog to be scared of you. Right. And, and then, you know, five experiences of that in your younger yeah. years later, it's going to be. So I've told confirmed. these stories, you know, on other podcasts, but I'll, I'll tell them again because they're. Please do. Powerful. No, I, and you I've know. listened to them, but okay. for our listeners that maybe they haven't. I had, this was in when I was about 28. I had a lifelong allergy to cats. Mm-hmm. Uh, if a cat got near me, my eyes would itch. Uh, if a cat licked me, I'd get hives where it licked me. So I always avoided cats. I didn't let them touch me. And one day, uh, when I was 28, I was with a group of friends outdoors, beautiful setting. I took LSD, fantastic. I was in a wonderful state. What year was this? This would have been about 1970, I would say, okay. in rural Virginia. So in, in the midst of this feeling great, a cat came and jumped in my lap. And I had an immediate, you know, defensive reaction. And then I thought, this is stupid. You know, uh, why should I react this way? And I relaxed and let the cat play with me and rubbed it, licked me. I had no allergic reaction and I never have had one since. So instant disappearance of, you know, a lifelong allergy as a result of some mental change. And it seemed to me that it was the being able to drop whatever that defensive attitude was, you know, which was in my body and my mind, that that's what had to do with it. So the even more interesting one Shortly after, around the same time, I also uh, was always, I had fair skin and I could never get tanned and used to go to the beaches on the Jersey Shore. I mean, I had many second degree burns, you know, sheets of skin peeling off and and then I'd be back to pale skin again. So I was always told, this is how you are, you can't get tanned. So again, one day, you know, around that same time, also on LSD, I think it was by myself then, um, I was running around naked in my backyard. It was a beautiful space and I was lying on the grass the sun was pretty high in the sky. And, you know, I had this momentary thought, this is probably not a good idea to do. And then I thought, you know, fuck it. You know, the sun feels good. Yeah. And I got tan the next day and I have ever since. Now that's a little trickier one to explain than the allergy. Uh, But it also must involve the immune system and the mind immune system connection because the the pigment cells in the skin, uh, melanocytes, are derived from neurons, and there's some close connection there between the nervous system and those cells. But to me, that stuff is that's fascinating. So a, a skeptical person would say, for the cat one, couldn't you just test that? Give people... Yeah. Uh, you could if LSD like was readily available for, yeah. for that. You know, I would start an allergy clinic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what does go into you hypothesizing that and then... Um, and then saying, okay, well, now I want to test this. Well, I'm not a researcher. You know, that's a different mentality. I don't want to do that. I would like to inspire other people to do that. So, you know, I give them the idea here, look, I've experienced this, go see if you can replicate that and then figure out how to, you know, derive a therapy from that. For listeners, and and I was very unaware of this, what goes into the research when you say I'm not a researcher? And I think in my head five years ago, I would have just been like, but that's easy. Just like set it up at, you know, at the university and just, you know, check in with people. It's boring and tedious to me. You know, what I'm good at is coming up with ideas, with hypotheses to test and give those to other people, let them do the work. I don't want to be in a laboratory doing that. It's not what I'm cut out for. 
Well, okay, then what's the I'm, I'm, a, I'm a clinician, not a researcher, you know, right. and it's a different mentality. Yeah. It's not necessarily, it does not seem like it's the same person that comes up with the ideas and then spends the three years right. getting the grants, then the three years studying, then the three years promoting. And doctors, you know, are, think of themselves as scientists, but it just annoys the hell out of me that, you know, that the first step of being a good scientist is to observe. And if you see things that don't fit your preconceptions, you don't throw them out. You know, you you try to figure out why that doesn't fit your preconceptions. You know, maybe your ideas are wrong. And I just I see that again and again that people, you know, many doctors dismiss that story that I just those stories I told you. That's anecdotal, you know, anecdotal evidence, which means that's a wastebasket, you know, labeled anecdotes. You drop it's, it in there. In in the tech world, it's the exact same. It's just like, oh, but that's an anecdote. We okay, need data. So, you know, most people don't know the literal meaning of the word anecdote. It's from Greek and it means unpublished. So once something is published, it's no it's longer no anecdotal. Longer. And I've written about this stuff, so it's not anecdotal anymore. <laughs> That's people, a should phenomenal test, response. people should yeah. be testing it. That's a great <laughs> retort. Actually, no, it's published, so it's not. And, and I've heard you also talk about experiment and experience. Yes, it's similar. In most uh, languages derived from Latin, and unfortunately not English, uh, it's the same word. In Spanish, experimentar means both to experience and to experiment. That's really interesting. So you can let your experience be a way of experimenting, and you can conduct experiments through your own experience. Right, which is, um, so it's cast aside so casually of like, yeah, that's a, right. and in my world, in the software world, it's like, oh, but that's an N of one, you yeah, know, yeah, a sample yeah. size of one. So right. that's not we meaningful. We can disregard that. We right. can disregard it. Right. But trying to replicate in many really important yeah. moments in time, trying to get a hundred, a sample size of a hundred is so cost prohibitive or impossible to replicate right. that then it's just like, well, just throw it all away. And I, what I hear what you're saying is, Observation is a pretty powerful means yeah. of accumulating information. Yeah, that's how you get hypotheses. And then you test the hypotheses. If you disregard the observations, you've cut yourself off from the source of hypotheses. Okay, so tell me the third story that has helped shape, shape you and who you've become. The third story. Well, you know, I gave you an article, a story to read about my experiences with death in medical school and yes, growing up. got it right here. Okay. I, I had to... The other thing that's really rare about you is um, putting together disparate, disconnected pieces of information, a very creative lens mm -hmm. and uh, medicinal background, you know, an MD putting together creative, right. uh, disparate, disconnected things with very little data early on and, mm -hmm. and advocating for it. It's very rare. But also, you're a phenomenal writer. Yeah, I'm a good writer. You, were, you <laughs> wrote for the Harvard Crimson. Yeah, I developed my skills as a journalist and uh you know and then i also had a lot of experience editing other people's writing but and i get very impatient with bad writing and yeah. a lot of people think that they can't understand things that they read and it's not that the content is difficult it's that the writing is bad right oh i, I yeah one of my uh one of my favorite people in in uh san francisco uh, naval ravikant says he's he basically is just like Look, it's the job of the author to grip me. If I put a book down right. because I don't want to read it after 20 pages, that's on them. That's Good. Not, it's not because I, you know, Couldn't agree more. he doesn't have discipline. So yeah, it's right right here. I've got it here. And yeah, it's, it's not often that I read through something and then I just had to put it down and think about it for 10, 15 minutes. Good. 
and I'll probably think about it much longer, but I, I like, I couldn't do anything after reading this. Uh-huh. Not only is it well written, but do you mind telling listeners what it, what this Well, it's this called Encounters about? with Death, and it's about my experiences of death and awareness of death. Going back to um, a time when I was three years old, one of my earliest memories, and um, as I told the story, I was with my grandmother, my father's mother. My father wasn't home. It was late afternoon, and someone had died. And I think it might have been President Roosevelt because I was born in 1942, so this would that he died in 1945. At any rate, my grandmother was very upset about that. And I remember going to bed that night and suddenly waking up and realizing I was going to die. And I was terrified and uh, ran down screaming into the kitchen where my mother and father were. I I don't remember what my mother did, but my father really was trying to console me about about this. And, you know, he told me that I had a soul that would live on after death. And, uh, you know, I was asking my Was your father religious? Not really. And uh, I was asking him, you know, like, well, could my soul travel? Could it go to New York City? (laughs) And as he talked, I suddenly realized he did not believe what he was saying, you know, that this was bullshit. And that was a a really disturbing revelation for somebody three years old that, you know, first of all, that these people who I was in in charge of my life, you know, didn't know uh, and that I was on my own. And then especially in the face of this whatever this very powerful mystery was. Um, So I think ever since then that, you know, I've thought about death all the time and I found that I could not talk about it with many people. You know, people don't want to talk about it. Did you feel, and and I I want to get back to the the rest of this, but did you feel, you mentioned the the phrase you felt like you were on your own as an only child um, from that experience or others? I think that greatly contributed to my independent mind, my independent thinking, my entrepreneurial self, my being on my own from a very early age. Were there moments of, you know, duress and stress of Absolutely. Alone? I mean, there were many points along the way where I was not very successful, where I didn't have money, where I didn't know where, what the next move was, you know. So, yeah, a lot. But I think I had great trust in my intuition and a sense that, you know, I just have to follow my inner light. To, to go back to the stuff about, about death, Another experience I recounted in there was that when I was in high school, it must have been about 15, uh, I had an anaphylactic reaction to an allergy desensitization shot for, uh, for uh, ragweed pollen. Uh, I, I almost died from that. I, you know, if I, I had walked home from the doctor's office and my throat was itching a lot and I took an antihistamine, but it got worse and then suddenly I realized I couldn't swallow and I was having trouble breathing. I was alone and I tried to call the doctor's office and I couldn't talk. And fortunately, at that moment, my father walked in and, you know, realized I was in trouble and he hustled me into the car and took me back to the doctor's office and everybody went into, you know, emergency mode. And I was overwhelmed by this incredible sense of calmness and peacefulness. And I had an out-of-the-body experience where I was on the ceiling looking down at my body and could not... How old again? 15, I think. Could not understand why all these people were running around crazily and so upset. You know, I was in such a calm, great place. And they shot me up with adrenaline and some steroids. Real quick, just to, just to go into that a little bit further, you felt like you were out, it was out of body. 
Yeah, I had an experience. I think this was like, you know, the beginning or the early stage of what people describe as a near-death experience. I mean, I didn't see a white light. I didn't see a tunnel. But I was, you know, I was definitely, my consciousness was separated from my body. And the, the mood accompanying that was incredibly tranquil, peaceful. Everything felt all right. And, I, and it just seemed crazy to me that these people were so upset. At any rate, the uh, adrenaline... I, I could see my heart suddenly starting to beat faster and I was jerked back into my body and it was really uncomfortable. Uh, and I just felt awful. But that stayed with me and that experience, whatever that is. I mean, that's like, you know, it was really interesting to me. Uh, to anyone, yeah, that's yeah. had a near-death experience, you know, they, they often say it's one of the most profound things that they go through. What, did you, were you able to talk about this with no. people a week no. later, a year later? No, people didn't want to hear it. And I didn't, I don't know, it felt like a very private experience and I really didn't talk to talk much about it. Would you put that in the top two or three? Uh, I know that this is part of just that third story of shaping you of different encounters with death, but would you put that as one of your top uh, experiences? I think so. I mean, that was, a, that was, yeah, very interesting. And, you know, my, I think death is the ultimate mystery. You know, the, the literal, to me, the literal meaning of mystery is something that you can, that you're, you can experience but not understand. Now, there's no way with our thinking mind that we can figure out what that is, and yet we're going to experience it. To bring it full circle with matcha, you know, that 90% shade cover, and not to uh, not to be dramatic about it, but that ninety percent shade cover, I'm sure that contrast, mm-hmm. a reduction of you know, you, the the well, sun the and weather, force, the yeah. life force yeah. for that plant for to one tenth the amount, you know, it, and it does produce vastly different results in the in the yeah. tea leaves uh, because they just go into holy shit mode. Yeah. Something <laughs> is totally different. But I wonder, I wonder if that uh, experience for you. Um, also sent you, it sounds like sent you on, I mean, it was only a year later, you're wanting to travel, two years later, right. that you're wanting yeah. to travel the world right. uh, rather than go to college with with your peers. Yeah. I, I had a similar close encounter with death when I was 15 of my sister passing away. And, mm-hmm. and I I certainly view my perspective of life of a before and after. There's just like my huh. life split in two. Huh. Um, my perspective on things split in two. But yeah, it's not something that I've ever really been able to articulate to where someone would understand by the other people that have gone through. And I haven't chatted about it with, and I think it is different than someone going through a near-death experience, mm-hmm. but it's certainly friends of mine that went through something uh, around that age. I wonder if that also was a factor that it wasn't at seven for you or it wasn't Possible. at yeah. 36. Yeah. And, you know, also I think things are changing in our culture that there's more people willing to talk about death and dying. And, you know, one of the great deficiencies in medicine and medical education was doctors were not given any training in how to deal with dying people. And that often led to, you know, not really good, not good experiences at all, that they had to keep people alive at all costs and so forth. I mean, that has, that has changed. And there's now, uh, you know, I think the growth of the hospice movement is one of the best things that's happened in this country. But still, when you compare our relations with death to those of some other cultures, like India, for example, um, you know, I don't think many people know this, but the reason Orthodox Hindus, you know, it's very incumbent upon them to have sons. And the reason you need a son is that it is the duty of the son when the parent is being cremated that if the skull does not explode and release the spirit, the son has to smash the skull with a heavy club. 
I mean, that's a very different relationship with death from what we've got in, in this culture. Right. You know, we, we want it out of sight and, uh, you know, not discussed. To that, uh, to the previous topic about doctors uh, believing you can get better when, when they see that the chances are it's terminal, it does, it, they're basically, they're, they're ill prepared. I mean, they're not, right. doctors are not trained on death. I mean, it's, as you put in the story, trained on, they're on preventing. With it because they're uncomfortable with it themselves. Yeah, the rest of the story just continues to, to blow my mind. Well, the rest of the story was about, you know, how I assisted my father to suicide. He had um, ALS, which is a devastating disease, and he really wanted out, and he asked me to help him do that. And that was a tough decision, you know, and my mother was totally freaked out, said, we can't do that in this culture, and you'll lose your medical license and so forth. But I really honored his wish. And so that was the first time I'd actually sat with a person and watched the death process. Um, and he had a, he was very lucky he had one of the most peaceful you know beautiful deaths that i can imagine this but, was on the heels of him trying to take his own life yeah which he botched and um, you know wound up in a, in a hospital and then the, the hospice people who were in charge of him gave him this lecture about what a bad thing he did and i that really pissed me off i went and told for, him for people that don't know als yeah it's a, a three little acronym does not do it justice for no it's like the, in the way it's the opposite of alzheimer's disease you know the mind is intact and the body deteriorates to the point where you can't move and can't swallow and eventually can't breathe um, no cure and it's progressive and it's just devastating but to me the one of the most interesting things was at the uh, it, you know, his dying process was about four hours and toward the end, his breath became slower and slower and shallower and shallower and eventually stopped. And, you know, I was leaning over him and after a minute suddenly he took a breath and then there was another long period of nothing happening and he took one more breath and then suddenly, and it was like instantaneous, he wasn't there. You know, suddenly this was a corpse. And whoever he was was not there anymore. You could perceive that? Absolutely. And at the same moment, I felt a wrenching pain in my chest and I collapsed on him and was crying and, you know, he was gone. And that was the mystery right there. You know, amazing. Now, where did he go? Where did he go? He wasn't in his body anymore. I've never heard you talk about that. Uh, do you talk about this this story? I haven't. No. I, when I wrote it up, that's the first time I've told friends. And one of the problems in telling friends was then I had a lot of people asking me to help them promise that I would help them. And I said, I can't do that. You know, that's not my, my thing. You know, I did this for a parent and as a doctor, uh, and as someone that has had these, these brushes with death, um, you touched on it, but do you mind building it out more of just our relationship with death, which is in 2019, imagine better than it was in 1992. Is that better? Yeah. What what is our relationship with death uh, right now? If you're just an observer, well, first what of all, there is a trend toward uh, you know assisted suicide and legalizing that. I mean, I think absolutely people should have the right to end their life. You know, that's not. You, and you're going to have listeners. I know. I can just feel it, uh, kind of squirming with this concept. Right. Um, I'm not so sure that doctors should be the ones to do that. You know, that's not the business of doctors. I think there should be a new class of of professionals, you know, one term is thanatologist, you know, that's from the Greek word for death. But, um, you know, somebody who could assist people to suicide if it was decided that was a legitimate thing, and probably not for psychological reasons. 
you know, for, for, you know, overwhelming illness or whatever. And why do you say for not, not for psychological reasons? Well, I think that's much muddier. You know, if somebody is very depressed and wants to kill themselves, um, I think, you know, the phrase, this too shall pass, things change. And that uh, just because somebody is very depressed doesn't mean that they're always going to be depressed. And I don't think that they necessarily should act in that state. Yeah, it's, it feels so I could sense someone on the other side of hearing this say, well, um, what about with, with other diseases, things can change or... I don't know the answers to these questions. You know, these are tough questions. And I think that we need people to think about them and think how we, how we come to terms with them. You know, there is a, um, there's a new profession that's come into being called death doulas. These are people that are analogous to midwives who assist people through the dying process. And that, that's a useful thing. As I said, the hospice movement is a useful thing. The fact that, you know, more doctors are, you know, not going to just preserve life at all costs, that's all good. But how, how we deal with assisted suicide, I don't know. Those are very tough ethical questions. I don't have the answers, but I'd like to see us talking about it. Well, and I, I think even just mention, having the, the, the viewpoint of it could be relevant here and, and perhaps you know, unproductive here with something like psychological disorders. Yeah, when, once you have kind of a, a hammer, yeah. you know, then it's like, well, everyone could choose. That seems a, like pretty right. dicey territory, especially when it comes to things like, like depression or mental illness where where maybe there is a better solution. I mean, right. we already mentioned psychedelics, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's certainly been in the last twenty five years, perhaps the most exciting right. new development. By the way, in the in the days when the early psychedelic research was going on in the late fifties and sixties, uh, one of the most promising areas was working with dying people. Um, there was a hospital in Maryland, Spring Grove State Hospital, that. Um, did very good research with terminal cancer patients uh, in which they were, people who were selected for this had sessions with a psychiatrist, psychotherapist to prepare them for a guided LSD session and then did that and then there were follow-up sessions. Results were amazing that, you know, a very high percentage of these people, uh, first of all, needed much less pain medication afterwards. They were comfortable with the idea of their own death. For the first time, they were able to interact productively with family and friends because often, you know, in those situations, it's like the elephant in the room. You know, the person's dying, but nobody is willing to talk about it. Or it's same with depression. Right. Um, my sister, 18 years ago, took her own life after after one uh, attempt, and um, and I look back on that, and in the dialogue and and the openness is is changing, which is so great to see. Mm -hmm. But that was. A very isolated experience she was going through where she i can only imagine she thought about it all, all day time. all the time but we could not talk about oh, death yeah. and that's you know i think that i have um certainly seen yeah in oregon there's uh the right to die right. movement and 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 it seems it's almost like we can't even think about that properly or the positive potential repercussions of of thinking about it, talking about it, because it's just this third rail that no one wants to talk right. about. But even in literally just this conversation, thinking about it, I wonder how beneficial it could be for people with with mental illness if if they could even just talk about that, explore that option with other people mm -hmm. rather than the idea that they're not exploring it is completely false. They are exploring it, but they're but doing it in, in their own head. Right. 
right. for six straight months. I think that'd be very helpful. And again, I think uh, the possibility of using psychedelics to assist that process would be is great. To assist the process of exploring? Of exploring and verbalizing and communicating. Certainly been... Uh, been uh, profound to see the the research around yeah terminal yeah. illness and and people's comfort with death yeah. um, on the other side of, of psychedelics that must have been so strange for you you got to see it on psychedelics you got to see it kind of in that optimistic heyday I, you you were mentioning last night the video on YouTube what's yeah. the video that it's everyone housewife on LSD yeah from Just what classic. year I think it's from the late fifties and it was a psychiatrist I knew uh, he was at UCLA. And he gives this very straight woman a dose of LSD. And, you know, she has a completely non-dual experience. I mean, she is experiencing, you know, you said you're interested in Vedanta. She's experiencing the state that they talk about of non-dualism. And he and the psychiatrist is such an asshole and begins asking her questions like, you know, well, you know, are you comfortable or not? And she just smiles and says, you know. But what does that mean? Right. Yeah. It's, it is such a phenomenal yeah. video. Um, I and, remember and she says at one point, I feel really sorry for you that you can't experience what I'm experiencing. And but she says it in the most serene. Serene. Yeah. Exactly. Um, completely. There is no egoistic yeah. kind of angle on it. It's you know there. Yes, for everyone listening. Um, I don't even, I, I would encourage you to turn off this podcast, get a, to go watch it because <laughs> yeah, it, housewife on LSD because it, and it's, and that's before the stigmatization before the, yeah. the, the right. major kind of propaganda right. machine against, um, against psychedelics, which is just so, uh, especially in 2019, I think it's, it's why there's such an appreciation for, um, for different, different opinions and different perspectives because you know, you have this national governmental wide stigmatization of something like LSD non-toxic right. I've never taken but right. completely non-toxic and then you have the opioid crisis that we're living in right now um, that is I think I remember reading 200 million prescriptions not individuals but prescriptions in 2017 um, it might have been 2016 but uh, given out in this in the US for uh, opioids and yet it's you know psilocybin or psychedelic right. mushrooms it's still in the in the broader sense of cultural understanding it's like whoa 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 whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, no 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 dangerous no. right dangerous right. um and i've never done yeah. mushrooms either but what is what what has that been like seeing the really an interesting optimism around it in uh late 50s 60s then shut down completely. shut down what was that like witnessing it would did it make no sense to you whatsoever did you kind of also sense hey yeah maybe we should put a kibosh on this no i think it's so irrational you know that the the those drugs on a physical level are safer than any drugs we use in medicine uh the dangers of them are psychological safer than advil oh, infinitely <laughs> infinitely i mean almost every drug we use in medicine you can kill people with you can't kill people with psychedelics uh the however there are psychological dangers that are real but those are products of set and setting, of dose set and setting. It's people's expectations and the environment. And that's why it's really important if you're going to take those things to take them in the correct way. And often that means taking them with a, an experienced person who can help shape the experience in the right way. And that's not going to be a psychiatrist. I think, you know, we need a new class of professionals there as well who are guides. Right. Right. I remember asking my psychiatrist friend four or five years ago in my ignorance, just saying, so do you do therapy? And she looked at me, she's like, 
no. And I, it was that moment that it, it just completely hit me. Like I knew psychiatrists and psychologists were quite different. Yeah. But it hit me almost the way that, and I and I can only uh, in, try to interpret what because I I did I put it together weeks later. I, I, there was almost like um, I don't think it was demeaning therapy, but it was just like no, that's not what we do. But to the average patient, you go to the doctor with an ailment, and you want them to look at all available treatments. Um, and in, in chatting with her since, I I know that you know it's pharmacology right. is that's, that's it right. That's her toolkit. Yeah. Um, and and it's whatever is you know makes it through the trials the right, right, right. Uh, you know the uh, whatever gets you know sent to the doctors to to start uh, our to center start put on a phenomenal integrative mental health conference in San Francisco uh, this spring for mental health professionals and it's about a really new model in which pharmacology is a minor part and the hunger for this is so great among both professionals and patients and. That, that model that now dominates psychiatry is so obsolete and so limited, it's got to change. But here's, as an example of how things are changing, uh, I have a friend in Vancouver, a middle-aged woman who has wrestled with depression for years and is working with a conventional psychiatrist. And he said to her that he thought she should try to microdose with mushrooms. I mean... I can't believe that. That's great. A, a psychiatrist that does practice therapy and is a great therapist in Dallas, Texas, told uh, a close, really close friend of mine that's had major depression issues for 20 years, has tried every uh, prescription under the sun, as well as CBT and DBT and different things. And, and the doctor about a year ago just said, I think you should try cannabis. Amazing. So things are changing. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, what do you think the source is? So if it's not the content, but the source is, what do you think of that relationship that is changing or has been changing over the last five, six well, years? Well, I think some of it came from Silicon Valley, where you are. I mean, of like, you know, successful techies who, you know, say they're microdosing and it's increasing their creativity and productivity. Um, I think that's been one major influence. It's also been uh, research that has been widely publicized about the effectiveness of MDMA for PTSD and psilocybin for OCD and for drug-resistant depression. So I think there's a, a lot of sources that are contributing to it. As I add in podcasting and just kind of, it's almost, we went to the and medical profession. you know, have also been a major influence here. Right. I want to get you onto your own <laughs> podcast here uh, in 2019. Um, just to go back to the story uh, about your father, how have you, just pers on a personal level, um, that was 27 years ago. Yeah. It sounds like you've only told a few friends. What has that emotional toll afterwards been like from an individual that has helped assist his own father's death? I mean, I did the right thing. You know, I had no doubt about that. As I said, my mother was completely freaked out and uh, tried to dissuade me from doing it. It was absolutely certain for me that was the right thing to do. And he, like the, he couldn't talk anymore at that point and he was writing on a magic slate and the night before um he wrote me a message that said i can't tell you how proud i am of you for what you're for you're helping me and i, I want to read a little bit from here um because i think it's it's just so well captured in in the way that that you write and just for people to to know and it's in it's in this short story just the buildup of this. This uh, this isn't just a, a you know Tuesday night your right. father writing this. This yeah. is years and years of it 
of decline right and 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 stress on the entire entirety of your family yeah on top of you know expense and your your mother you know she says that in here you know she says we we can't do that our culture doesn't do that i do want to ask what are cultures that that you've seen are there cultures with the healthiest view on this well there certainly are cultures now i mean such as uh you know the netherlands and uh uh, other countries where assisted suicide has become like totally routine and even fewer from this country are going to those places. How would, I'm not sure sure they've solved all the ethical issues around it, but, you know, at least, you know, they make it available. In British Columbia, that's become also quite routine. What would the moral argument be for someone that would say, you know, as a uh, traditional Christian, um, they would say, you know, just murder isn't right. Well, that's not my business. You know, as I say, these are complicated ethical issues that people have to answer for themselves. Mm-hmm. So uh, going into the story, the two morticians came and take you, took your father right. out of the room after he passed. And and you're in the room with uh, your mother, your wife, and a nurse, right. a friend of yours that had also helped. And, and you write, as soon as he left, I and the three women hugged and laughed. Yes, laughed. Laurie and I described our six-hour vigil. Before we knew it, the funeral parlor attendants were there for the body. Two morbidly obese men who said little and avoided eye contact uh, took the body out. When you say laughed, what, what was going through? I, I, I imagine this is a relief. In, you know, it was a relief that it was over, that, you know, this ordeal that uh, my mother had been through was over, that we'd gotten away with it. I imagine it was, um, were you really scared leading up to it? No. No. You just knew it was the right thing. I knew it was the right thing. And you just, whatever repercussions happened, happened. Yeah. And then, um, go back to the story. Jenny, your mother, Jenny blossomed after my father passed, traveling and having adventures that were impossible while she was caring for him. That's, I think, an untold price of, of us keeping someone that is yeah. terminal, terminally ill. And I've never really explored this in my mind. So, listeners, I'm doing this real time. Um, but that is a, an untold price of keeping someone alive that is terminally ill for a greatly extended period of time. Mm-hmm. The entire family is yeah. kind of anchored down. Yeah, They moved to Tucson. Your mother, I imagine, just caring for him is, uh, is anchored down. And you can see that just prolonging an inevitable is not... Uh, well, the thing is, it was more, you know, he got to the point where he, in another few days, he wouldn't have been able to swallow. Mm. And that means they have to put a feeding tube in, but it also meant that he wouldn't be able to swallow pills. And if he couldn't, then I'd have to do a more active intervention, and I didn't want to do that. Mm. Oh. Well, it's... Um, it so is... there was a, an urgency. It was clearly that was the the time that this had to happen. Well, it's a really powerful story. I hope is this released anywhere for nope. anyone to read? Nope. You're welcome well, to take it with you if you want. <laughs> I uh I no, I'll I'll let you save it for your podcast. Okay, you can read right. it to everyone. Right. Um some of the the last areas that I want to touch on then and then um I'll let you get going back okay. to your super productive day. <laughs> and just to touch on that, you mentioned yesterday about your productivity. Do you mind? Uh, do you mind retelling? I uh, said, audience, you know, I you look said? to most people out there that I'm extremely productive, but my internal sense is that I'm really lazy and just spend a lot of time goofing off. Uh, I don't know. That's just how I feel. I don't feel guilty about that particularly, but you know, I I don't feel super productive. What informs that kind of viewpoint on life of uh, of 
um, if anything, that one, just kind of uh, relaxing a lot, but also being comfortable with it because that's very un-American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I I enjoy relaxing. I enjoy my leisure time. I remember you telling me this story that uh, that was it the dean of the medical school. There was a dean of students at Harvard Medical yeah. School. Yeah, tell was me that's really right. a he was not a nice person, and he delighted in making people feel bad. And the way he made me feel bad was that he would call me into my office every few months and berate me for having too many outside interests. I acted in a theater company. I was writing articles for magazines. And uh, he said I wasn't taking medical school seriously. And he would say I was just a dilettante. And that would make me feel bad. And after several times of hearing that, I went and looked up the word dilettante. And it comes from Italian and it means to enjoy. So once I knew that, he could never get to me again. <laughs> <laughs> well, in a puritanical uh, uh, influence, America, yeah, enjoyment is not, it's right. not part of the regimen. Right. Um, you know, and we work harder than any people in the world. We have less leisure time. Right you know, than most other cultures. Yeah, it's, um, it is, I, I, when you told me that, I, I reflected on just how little we are encouraged to, uh, yeah. to relax and, and how much when you talk to what, how much when I have talked to experts, how much they actually plan relaxing. I know Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, the two best investors in history, plan four hours every day of just thinking time. Yeah. And, and then you have a cohort of people that idolize them in New York City that are 25, 26 years old working, working 90 hour right, weeks. Right. The exact opposite. Yeah. Um, <laughs> of of carving out time in each day to just think. Yeah. Um, the I want to talk about your uh, books and, and I've got two of them right here, uh, but I also want to touch on something that uh, a question that I ask many people was uh, on this podcast is what's something you think a lot about but you rarely get a chance to talk about. Uh, what's a topic that, and this is going to be hard for you because you're, I think you're about to go on Dr. Oz. Like you're, you're, right. Yeah, you've been on uh, many podcasts. You're encouraged to talk a lot about so many different things, but what is something that would be in that kind of the recess of your mind that you, that uh, are actually the forefront, but you rarely ever talk about? I guess, you know, one, all right, one top is magic. You know, okay. I love magic. And, but I mean real magic. And to me, one of the main components of real magic is how to manifest things. Uh, so uh, for me, cooking is magic, you know, that you, you get an idea in your head of something you want to create, and then you have to manifest it in this laboratory. You know, you have to select the right ingredients, do the right things. People don't think of that, but you know, I think cooking is good training in practical magic. And then you carry that over into other areas of the life. You know, you want something to happen. And how? What do you do internally, mentally, that increases the chance of that happening? The the hobby of of cooking, I can't. I think creation in in almost all forms pushes right. you absolutely. To I feel say that gardening as well, but I also feel that you know, like what's happened with integrative medicine. You know, this is now yeah, we're getting a twenty million dollar building at the University of Arizona. The university says this is like the jewel of their thing. A lot of people around the world only know the University of Arizona through this program and me. I mean, all that, like, amazing that that came about, right? How have you had the persistence or the internal drive to stick with these things that that now, yes, 45 yeah. plus years into your career, it's it's so in vogue, but obviously wasn't it's for so long. what I said earlier, that I have a very strong internal sense of what my path is. And even when I got no or hardly any external, you know, 
reinforcement of that, that I just kept putting one foot ahead of the other because I knew that was what I had to do and what was the right thing to do. Has it ever taken its toll mentally on you? Or Yeah, as I said, there have been times when, uh, you know, I really wondered when, you know, I was like, it was, you know, not clear from one day to the next where I was going to get enough money for rent or, you know, what I was going to do. I, I had, you know, dropped out of medicine. So, yeah, there were a lot of points where I wondered and had doubts and heard criticisms from other people. But I still, deep down, I knew this is the way I have to go. What about relationally in your life? Did it ever just this, uh, either the entrepreneurial pursuit towards creating things from from scratch or, or being isolated because of viewpoints that just weren't shared, um, were there any were there any relational uh, you know, casualties along the way of friends, of close friends or colleagues or mentors or just family members that, that you're like, oh shit, this is going to blow up that relationship. <laughs> I ain't trying to think about that. I mean, there were certainly a lot of people that I was involved with that thought I had made wrong decisions, that I was, you know, doing things that were not going to produce results. Uh, I, I don't know that it took a toll on relationships. Were there any that you that you took harder than, than any others where you're like, oh, this is, you know, you hear about this with, you know, psychologists and the lineage of psychologists mm -hmm. and then almost to become their own individual entity, they have to uh, point out where their mentors got it wrong. Or uh, you see that with kind of the Freudian lineage right? or in philosophy with the Socratic kind of lineage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was there anything like that where you were like, I need to actually part with even the people closest to me, and maybe not. But I, I wonder if that's uh, if that's ever been the case with some of the just the really out there things that you push. Yeah, absolutely. People. I mean, there were there. Were, I had several mentors in my life, and some of them got you know upset with the directions I was going in. But again, I knew that was the right thing. Also, I think the experience of being an only child, of being very, um, I guess, eccentric, idiosyncratic. Uh, you know, has made me isolated in, in, in some ways. I really like alone time. I like spending time by myself. You know, I also like, you know, socializing, but it's really important to me to have my private time. I've never, I've never really asked this question, but I'm so interested uh, in, in that younger uh, Andrew Weil. How would, you, how would your high school class have described you and when you're well, Outwardly, 16? I was like, you know, very fun, quick-witted, fun to be around. Inwardly, I felt like a man from Mars, you know, that I just did not fit in anywhere. Do you feel that way today? Yeah, I guess I still do. But, you know, it's like I have all this external reinforcement now. <laughs> right. That is <laughs> yeah, a positive right. thing. <laughs> um, what is, what would you say is the the hardest moment in your career when you look back and, and you just feel like, man, that was the, that was the bottom. And maybe it was the times that you're saying that you just didn't know where rent was going to come from. Yeah. I mean, it was like, it was really sketchy. And, uh, you know, and then, and in those times, what, you, how old were I you? I would friends? say this was in my, you know, right around the time that I turned 40 and, uh, you know, which is classic midlife crisis and really questioning all the decisions I had made. And, and when I was in that state, then it was, you know, the criticisms of other people were much more, you know, hurtful, you know, things like my parents saying, you know, you should have been a, a real doctor and where, what, what was Andrew Weil doing at, at 40? Like what I was, I was, you'd already written, uh, I had written, yeah, books. right. But they were never like the early books were not, you know, major sellers. I mean, I got some money from them advances, 
but I was selling articles to magazines and, uh, you know, not really knowing where the next thing would come from. Doing what? a bit of consulting work, I'd get asked to speak places. And you, even people close to you, like your parents, felt like you had gone astray? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was like I had made bad decisions. Really? You know, living out in the desert in this, you know, <laughs> weird, weird lifestyle. And, in Tucson? Sure, yeah. In part of that idiosyncrasy, you mentioned this to me a little bit yesterday, but why Tucson? My car broke down here 45 years ago. Okay. Uh, and it took six weeks to get fixed. It was an English Land Rover that I'd driven to South America without incident. I, I One time at the end of the road system in the Amazon, the generator burned out and somebody improvised something to fix it. But when I got it back to this country, I couldn't get parts for it. And um, I had taken it to the Land Rover Agency in Laguna Beach to get overhauled and drove to Tucson, uh, planning to go down to southern Mexico. I was just going to stay in Tucson for a few days. And the Land Rover Agency had forgotten to pack one of the wheels with grease and a wheel bearing shattered, uh, which is very dramatic. And anyway, it took six weeks to get fixed. And it was February of a warm, wet winter. The desert was in full bloom. Fell in love with the natural environment, met people I liked and never left. Where were you heading? I was headed to the state of Oaxaca in southern Mexico to deliver a baby of a friend of mine. Uh, oh, wow. And uh, the baby delivered itself, as they usually do. And, uh, you know, I ended up staying in Tucson. That's phenomenal. Uh, speaking of books, one, I just want to get a sense for what is it? it what is your writing style like? What's your regimen like? How I don't do you... have a regimen. I'm very undisciplined. Uh, you know, I write when the mood is strikes me. I mean, I, I sometimes have to be deadlines and do little shit stuff. But with books, you know, it's often been that I've had a contract to write a book and I've been paid money. So there's pressure to do that. And when the pressure gets great enough, I do it. I write in the mornings. If I don't, if I don't write in the morning, I don't write. Um, I really don't write unless stuff is organized enough in my head to come out. And you wake up every morning at the same time, is that right? Yeah, I'm pretty, uh, yeah, I wake up when it gets light out or, or, or earlier. And with the, how, how many hours a day do you spend writing? Because writing and writing beyond coffee, it was, it was really, tough. yes, it was way tougher than every single time I sat down to write. On the other side, I was like, wow, that wasn't that hard. But in my head, yeah. <laughs> I, I read, I had a book, probably still have it, of, of writer's quotations. And one that I remember, I don't remember who said this, it says, like, writing is easy. You just sit in front of the typewriter, put the paper in, and wait until drops of blood appear on your forehead. <laughs> right. It is, I, it is, um, there's such a mental block around it. And every single time, three hours later, I'd be like, whoa, okay, that, was, that wasn't bad. That was fun. Uh -huh. But then I'd sit down the next day and be like, oh, no. And also, when you're in that state, Almost anything else looks more interesting than right. writing, like watering the plants, checking the refrigerator, doing this with the dogs. Right. You know, that's how do you stick and stay at it? Well, in a previous podcast, I remember you saying the two books, uh, and maybe this falls in line with something you think quite a bit about, because I, I haven't heard you talk much about them, but the two books that you gift quite often, one is The Way of Life mm -hmm. by Lao Tzu, and, uh, and the other is We. So both of these, you know, the one common characteristic is that they're very short. And I have little patience for reading, you know, vast amounts of words when the person could have said what they had to say in so little, you know. And uh, Lao Tzu wrote these, what is it, 56 verses? I don't remember the exact number. Yeah, I think it's 80. 80 or but something. that's all he did. You know, it's like this little slim book. And to me, it is, it is so encapsulates, you know, wisdom. You don't need to say anything else. And We is a book by a... Um, 
a Jungian uh, psychoanalyst about the psychology of romantic love. And it is also a very short, very, very clear book about the the trap of romantic love. And it's it's so well written and so clear. And they're both books are about the same size. Let's, uh, what are some of the traps just to build on, uh, that out a little bit that, that at least, you know, intrigued you so much to make that a book that you, you wanted to recommend? Everyone? Well, I just see that, I mean, our, our culture is totally obsessed with romantic love. I mean, you listen to popular music, that's, you know, all it's about. It's about the joy of finding it and the pain of losing it. Right. And, uh, you know, that the, his analysis of it is that this is all, it's all projection. You know, there's something, you are projecting something in yourself onto the other person. Uh, and falling in love with that. And, right. and if, you know, with continual exposure, that fades and the other person is left looking like on their own. And then if you can't find some way of, of, tr- of translating that falling in love experience into a, you know, some other kind of state, you're doomed. It's, I remember learning years ago that uh, to the Greeks, the highest form of love was friendship. Right. And, and I don't know if we covers this, but, but uh, in, in the, the lecture that I was, I was hearing about this, that it's a more, uh, it's a much more recent phenomenon for romantic mm-hmm. love. To yeah, be that's quite, that came Victorian about in the Middle era. Ages. Yeah, that. Middle Ages, maybe. Well, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, for the Greeks, you know, you, you loved your wife, but it was the friendship with your wife right. that you had yeah. and your friendship yeah. outside yeah. Uh, of your marriage. And the same with, uh, with your wife, right. her friendship. Uh, with friends was that was the highest form of love. It's yeah, um, and it's always stuck with me because when I do think about it for my wife and I, it is absolutely one thousand percent our friendship. That's that, great. Uh, that right. is our our favorite facet. Well, I recommend those two books, and uh, you know, I I quote from them a lot, and uh, I think they're terrific. And Lao Tzu, by the way, there are many many translations, and some of them are totally opaque. You know that. And and then you read one that's this one that I particularly like is translated by a man named Witter Binner, and it's so clear it really speaks to me. And uh, you know, I think he really captured the essence of what Lao Tzu was saying. Do you practice any um, tradition or or religion? No, I am uh, I, I'm very attracted to Buddhism, but Buddhism as a psychology, not as a religion. The religion of Buddhism leaves me as cold as any other religion. It's ritual, it's uh, uh, superstition, but the psychology of Buddhism is brilliant. You know, it's like, I think it's just amazing analysis of the human condition and practical ways of, uh, of reducing, you know, suffering. Right. Yeah. My favorite aspect of, of Eastern philosophy that runs through uh, Vedanta, Buddhism, Hinduism, non-attachment. Right. And, you know, we were talking earlier about that conscious state of, uh, or that uh, your gardener, the inability for the gardener to think that he was evoking the state from the dog. Right. Um, and, and what's happening in our mind, having yeah, a relationship yeah. with, uh, with, with what's happening outside. And I think for entrepreneurship, for creators of all kinds, um, there's almost nothing as destructive as being so attached to a certain outcome and in that internal attachment, um, you know, stress, anxiety, uh, forcing, it can be the limiting factor for some beautiful creation, you Mm -hmm. know, 20 degrees to the right, Mm -hmm. not being able to uh, to come to fruition. If you were to give listeners out of your 15 books, uh, which one was your favorite one to write and which one is your favorite one to go back to? 
over and over again. That's tough. I mean, that, the natural mind, my first one, I think is, you know, is really, really good. And it holds up after all this time. It's still used in college courses. I feel like it's more applicable now than I think it's more 30 years ago. Now. And I'll tell you a funny story. I mean, it got me in a lot of trouble when it came out because it was, you know, Life Magazine reviewed it, said this was a dangerous revolutionary book. Uh, Vice President Agnew attacked me in a speech, a campaign speech, saying that this was, you know, subversive and dangerous. Uh, and I think some people even used your own research yes. uh, to discredit <laughs> the book. I was saying research. But I'll tell you one, one funny story that I love. Um, this was probably somewhere in the, I don't know, maybe 19, late 1990s. I was in New York City. It was summer. It was a warm summer evening. I was walking along Park Avenue. And a very disheveled homeless man, looked like he was in his late 30s, came up to me to panhandle me. And I was brushing him off. And he looked at me and said, are you Andrew Weil? And I said, yes. He said, wow, I read The Natural Mind when I was in college. And that's one of the most influential books I've ever read. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe he was an ascetic. And, yeah, uh, and um, yeah, maybe it's an extreme form of non-attachment. Um, maybe. Well, and, and I think um, it's just worth going into a little bit here on the book of wh why I, I, I would surmise that people, I mean, it's it's dangerous in that it's it's kind of just, it's not condemning or condoning. Exactly. But also a things. lot of this was about that the experiences that you get when you take drugs are really within you. You know, it's not, the drug may release something, but it's not in the drug. And if you try to recreate the experience by taking the drug frequently, you lose it. And you have to find some other method like meditation to maintain it. I mean, that was one of the main arguments in that book. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, another book uh, that if you haven't read, I have one called Spontaneous Happiness, which is about emotional well-being. Right. And I breezed through that one yeah, um, in research for this. Information in it. Guess, and the yeah. other one, my first, the first book that became, uh, you know, was a number one New York Times bestseller was Spontaneous Healing. And that's really the philosophy of integrative medicine, you know, about that same thing, the idea that healing is within you. It doesn't come from without, you know, it's the same. And I know there are listeners that, that will um, kind of think it's woo woo. And I would have been in that, in that right. camp years ago. There's uh, a book that we mentioned right before we hit record, which was uh, mind body prescription and, mm -hmm. uh, and the, the author Borno, is that right? Yeah, I think so. Right. For, we're talking about uh, lower back pain and, and Sarno, Sarno, John right. Sarno, right. John Sarno. And, um, and a friend of mine in Silicon Valley who's a partner at, at Y Combinator and, and uh, a former partner at Y Combinator and just one of the most rational, um, scientifically uh, kind of left brain individuals had wrist pain from, he's a programmer, phenomenal, he's probably one of the top mm -hmm. 10 programmers that, that everyone in Y Combinator talks about. I won't mention him here. Actually, no, I think it's totally fine. Um, Aaron Eva is his name and... and uh, Aaron, if you look, just Google Aaron Eba Mind Body uh, Prescription, and IBA is his last name. And he has this blog post. In the midst of all these blog posts about programming, he has this one blog post that tells a story about his wrist pain and two years of pursuing, two years, $20,000, endless visits of pursuing everything to try to get rid of his, his wrist pain. A year into that, he's given this book, Mind Body Prescription. I believe that's the, that was yeah. the name of the version that, of the book that he got uh, by Starno, right. and just just discounted it because how can you read a book and get rid of wrist pain? Exactly. It was it was preposterous to him. Spent another year of pursuing every form of treatment. Got two different 
of the best doctors giving completely wildly different surgeries uh, as as recommendations. And ultimately was like, all right, before I choose one of these surgeries, I'm going to read this book because a year later he sees that same friend again and the friend said, hey, did you read it? Read the blog post to get the full downline, but one weekend later of reading the book, he's never had wrist pain in the last six, seven years uh, because of reading the book. I have many such stories. So it's uh, for my lower back pain. I think that's the, yes, that's, the yeah, that's <laughs> what I should, I should check out. Well, Dr. Okay. Wow, thank you so much for the time. Yeah, uh, this was uh, a blast to, to get to um, get your take on so many different subjects. I want to leave everybody with uh, matcha.com. Matcha. And there's so many different things we could touch on that, that yes. you're involved with. Also, drwild.com, which is a website that has tremendous amounts of practical information about health and that's right. DrWild.com, Matcha.com for Matcha Kari. Yeah. Got True Foods and uh, um, also hopefully a podcast coming out right. sometime soon <laughs> that people can check out. All right, Dr. Wild, thank you so much. Hey, friends and listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to hear more of these types of conversations, go over to your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe or leave us a review good or bad we love hearing from people that that appreciate this type of conversation and want more of it you can also follow us on twitter at go below the line as well as see in our twitter bio our email address for you to shoot us a note on any suggestions of guests or topics that we should cover we read every single one so thank you for those that have already sent those in that's it for us today We will see you next time on Below the Line. Below the Line is brought to you by Straight Up Podcasts.